Verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus spoke these words to the 12 disciples here on this day after just having dealt to them what was to them a crushing blow. He had just demolished, he had just dashed the very hopes and the very dreams that these 12 disciples had grown up hearing about and themselves eagerly awaiting. These men who had dropped their nets, left their homes, left their careers, left their families, left everything to follow Jesus when he called, did so with certain well-defined cultural and national expectations of what Jesus would do should he actually prove to be the Messiah. And not only that, these 12 disciples also anticipated certain rewards and blessings for dedicating themselves to his service. Such advantages and benefits as the high esteem and regard of the peoples, the highest seats, the most prestigious and eminent and distinguished seats of honor at the Messiah's right hand and left hand, and along, along with that, a certain level of authority and rule subject only to Messiah himself when he came into his kingdom. They looked forward to a life of earthly honor and earthly comfort. You see, these 12 disciples, along with every observant Israelite in the day, all across the Roman Empire, heard the stories from a very young age. As they sat with their families at the dinner table, as they worked with their fathers in the fields, as they were being tucked into bed and told bedtime stories by their mothers, over and over and over again were repeated to them promises of God made through the prophets about Israel's eager longing for the appearance of Messiah. Prophets and words such as we read in Amos 9, 14 and 15, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And again in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 16 to 20. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. At that time when I bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. All Hebrew children heard these stories. They had been told these promises, and they eagerly expected and waited for Messiah to appear. And here, under Roman, under Roman rule, the Hebrews' hopes for the arrival of Messiah began hitting a fever pitch as they groaned once again under the weight of a foreign power's oppression and control. And so the Jewish peoples looked for the arrival of him who would be their living, breathing, earthly liberator. When he comes to Israel, 
they were told, the Christ would immediately begin the process of gathering up Israel's fighting men to organize them and to go before them and lead them in successful armed revolt against the foreign powers that were reigning over them, breaking the shackles of bondage that had gripped them for so many long and painful years. Messiah's victory would be decisive, shattering the enemy, leading Israel to a return to liberty and autonomy as a nation. And the nation would then crown Messiah as king over her, and under his kingship, under his rule, Israel would experience a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity and influence such as never been seen, even under the golden age of King Solomon. So the disciples who dropped everything to serve and to follow Jesus did so with all of these stories and hopes in their mind. And in the early stages of Christ's ministry, as the disciples followed him around and they watched as massive throngs of people brought to Jesus their sick and he healed them, as they witnessed Jesus cast demons out of people with just a word, as they saw firsthand Jesus do miraculous deeds like walking on the water during a storm and calming the raging tempests by rebuking the winds, as the disciples were with Jesus and they beheld him feeding 5,000 men besides women and children with just a few loaves and fishes, and then again feeding 4,000 men besides women and children with four, with a few, again with a few loaves and fishes. They sensed this groundswell of support for their master rising to the point where John, in recording the feeding of the 5,000, said in John chapter 6, verse 15, that the crowds themselves were about to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. Now, if you're one of the 12 at this moment, it all must seemingly have been going according to plan. Everything was unfolding exactly how they wanted it to unfold. That is, until Jesus clearly announced to them what Messiah, that Messiah must do the exact opposite of all they'd grown up expecting. When Jesus told them in 16.21, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And it didn't end there. Yes, not only will the Messiah himself walk a path of suffering, but with him, those who wish to come after him as disciples must also prepare for a similar experience in this world. So these disciples, hoping for influence and earthly gain, earthly rewards, had just been told that they will endure suffering because of their connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of the living God will at one time return to rule and reign from his throne in Jerusalem in the future. But at his first coming, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 15 of the first letter, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And as John, the Apostle John, wrote in his first letter, God sent his Son to be the propitiation or the appeasement for our sins. Jesus came to live a perfect, sinless life that fulfills all righteousness in order to credit that righteousness to the accounts of all of those who put their faith and trust in him. 
Jesus came to die the death that bears all of your sins' penalties, provided you put your faith and trust in him. The result of Christ's life and death for all who truly believe in him is the blessing of eternal life with him. But the disciples on this day couldn't see that far ahead. They couldn't really grasp why, instead of ruling now and reigning from Jerusalem now, why overthrowing Roman rule now wasn't on the menu now. And it's hard to imagine what the disciples felt after Jesus spoke these words, that instead of going on a crusade to liberate Israel and set them in seats of honor, Messiah must suffer and be killed. And along with that, Messiah must suffer and be killed, and they too, if they would follow him as disciples, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. This is true for all of us. For everyone who would turn to Jesus Christ in faith, for all who would truly be a disciple of Christ, like we learned last week, you must also deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. You must count the cost and know that rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ in this life might actually lead you to great gain in this world, great earthly gain in this world. It might bring you a comfortable earthly life, but know this, recognize this, it will also issue in the forfeit of your very soul for eternity, meaning that you will endure forever the holy, just, and righteous wrath of God for the sin that you've committed against him. In this life. And know this every sin that you commit, every sin that we commit, it's all against Him. On the other hand, while following Jesus might cost you every earthly comfort and benefit that you hold dear, living as a disciple of Christ might actually lead to the loss of all that you love. It might mean losing your very life, the ultimate outcome for the true disciple the one who loses his or her life for the sake of Jesus Christ in this world, is that you will find your life in Christ. Meaning, you gain eternal life with Him who is the great joy and delight of your soul. You enter into the presence of Him who's worth more than all of the treasures in the world. But again, the disciples here are not able to comprehend all of this. And so Jesus kind of after, all, after saying all of these things, deny yourself, I'm going to suffer, he, he promises them something quite stunning. To a group of men whose hopes have been shattered, Jesus says this in verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this particular verse has caused problems for quite a few Christians, right? In fact, this is one of those texts I get asked about on a regular basis. Because on the face of it, it seems to suggest that the second coming of Christ would occur before all of the disciples died. However, let me just make it clear, that is not what this text says. During his earthly ministry, we know that Jesus explicitly said about his return, if you flip over to Matthew 24, 36, he said this, concerning the day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels, nor the Son, but the Father only. No one, not the angels, not the Son during his earthly ministry, but only the Father knows the timing of the Son's return. 
Which means that if Christ here can say, some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, it can't be a reference to the second coming because Jesus sets out a definite time frame for this to occur. A definite time frame in which this coming in his kingdom will take place. And if you read the Gospels that refer to this event of the Transfiguration explicitly, you will see that the Son of Man coming in his kingdom is consistently placed the transfiguration is consistently placed in all three events right after the phrase. And also, when you look at this term here, it's not referring, the coming in the kingdom here isn't referring to the literal earthly rule of Jesus Christ, but to the manifestation of his royal majesty, the manifestation of his kingly splendor. So there's been a number of suggestions as to what it means, as to what this manifestation or display of royal splendor refers to. The great reformer John Calvin, for example, proposed this. By coming in his kingdom, we are to understand the manifestation of heavenly glory, which Christ began to make at his resurrection, and which he afterward made more fully by sending the Holy Spirit and by the performance of miracles. So that's the idea put forward by the reformers. Others commend that, quote, the spread of the gospel in the early church through the power of the Son of Man. Some of the disciples after Jesus' death and resurrection would be a part of the manifestation of Christ's kingly reign, expanding throughout the Roman Empire as hosts of people were ushered into the kingdom. And still others suggest, and I quote, Jesus must here have been referring to his unique and awesome transfiguration before Peter, James, and John only six days later. These three disciples were, were the sum among the twelve who would not die until, in a most miraculous preview, they would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So these are the suggestions that have been put forward as to what Jesus is speaking about here when he said, you will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And while it is true that the kingly splendor of Christ is revealed and displayed in his resurrection, in his ascension, in the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, in the preaching of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire at the sight of, and the sight of souls saved, the fact, again, like we said just, just a minute ago, that the transfiguration immediately follows on this promise made by Christ in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke points to it being contextually what Jesus had in mind. Some of the disciples standing there with Jesus on this day, hearing him speak about the painful path, Messiah, the, the path of suffering Messiah must walk, hearing about the cost and the earthly difficulties that will arise for those who follow after him as a disciple, these will behold a manifestation of his glory. So they know that the one who is suffering, the one who will suffer, is no ordinary man, but is indeed the very Son of God who took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so while the path of Messiah will be one of suffering and death, and while the path of discipleship is one of self-denial, cross-bearing and following him, and the loss of our lives in order to gain them, all of this is buttressed and supported by the fact that Jesus Christ is glorious. That Jesus Christ is king. 
that he truly is the son of the living God. And Jesus, for a moment, will pull back the curtain to reveal his glorious royal splendor. This is the man. Behold the man for whose sake we deny ourselves. Behold the man for whose sake we take up our cross. Behold the man for whom all of us ought to be ready, willing, and prepared to lay down our very lives if we are called upon to do so. Behold him on this mountain whose face shines like the sun see his majestic splendor for a short time the cloak the veil of flesh is pulled back and a small part of the majestic glory is made visible for a moment the disciples see the glorious lord of heaven and earth by whom all things were created and for whom all things exist they see the lord by whose power all things are upheld they see the father's beloved son they see the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature in the person of jesus christ in jesus christ they see the image of the invisible god the one in whom the fullness of god is pleased to dwell and though the disciples don't yet understand it, this is the one by and through whom God reconciles to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The disciples here, and by extension those of us who turn to Christ in repentance and faith, must realize that we do not follow some defeated, helpless, powerless human being. We are not called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow someone who is just like us. We are commanded to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. The one who the Apostle John describes as the Word was with God and the Word was God. This Jesus is God come to us in the flesh. This Jesus is God who made his dwelling among us. And though he was in the form of God, the Apostle Paul writes, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the man. This is the man who calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. He is the man who is worth our life. And so, in fulfillment of this promise, six days later we read in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. See, Peter, James, and John comprised sort of an inner circle of disciples. It was these three that Jesus permitted, for example, to enter into the house of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, when Jesus raised up his daughter from the dead. We read in Mark chapter 5, verse 37, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. It was these three that engaged Jesus in a private conversation about the events actually leading up to the end times. As we read in Mark 13, 3, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And when Jesus went to Gethsemane to pray on the night when he was betrayed, he told the disciples, eight of the disciples, to sit where they were while he went off and prayed. 
But he took with him, according to Matthew 26, 37, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And here, once again, we see Jesus take with him these three disciples. And where did he take them? Look at the text. He led them up a high mountain by themselves. When you read about people ascending mountains in Matthew's gospel, the reader is supposed to prepare themselves to either hear or see something incredible. It was at Horeb, the mountain of God, in Exodus 3, verse 1, that the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush and called Moses to service. It was at the top of Mount Sinai that the Lord descended and called Moses up to receive the words of the covenant and the law. It was at Mount Carmel that the prophet Elijah, in the power of the Lord, defeated over 400 prophets of the false god Baal. It was at Mount Horeb where, that Elijah fasted 40 days and 40 nights and heard from the Lord in the sound of a whisper. And as the Lord encouraged, that, there the Lord encouraged Elijah with the news that he was not the only faithful man left in Israel, but the Lord still had 7,000 who had not bowed to an idol. And earlier on in Matthew's gospel, we read in chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain. And what occurred when Jesus went up on the mountain? From that mountain, he delivered the greatest sermon in the history of humankind, the Sermon on the Mount. Important events occur on mountains. And here, once again, we see Jesus leading Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. And true to form, a spectacular event occurs once again. As Matthew records in verse 2, and he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. The outward appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ was changed and his divine nature, a nature that has been veiled from view as a result of his taking on flesh and being found in the form of a servant, the cloak that covers his essential glory was removed for a minute and that glory was made visible. And so behold the royal kingly splendor and radiance of Jesus Christ the Lord. Verse 2, it tells us his face shone like the sun. Now we must appreciate for a second that even this display of Christ's splendor was such that Peter, James, and John could see it. Meaning, it's only a glimpse of the glory of Christ communicated to them in a way that they might see it and appreciate it. This was not the fullness of divine glory. They could not have handled the fullness of divine glory. It would have been too much for these. The great Puritan pastor John Owen explains it well saying this, and I quote, By the beams of the sun, light and life and heat unto the procreation, meaning the continuation of life, the sustentation, meaning the sustaining of life, refreshment and cherishing of all things are communicated. But if the sun itself should come down to earth, nothing could bear its heat and luster. Our eyes would not be enlightened, but darkened by its glory." and the things be swallowed up and consumed by its greatness, whereas through beams of it everything is enlightened and kindly refreshed. So it is with the eternal beam or brightness of the Father's glory. We cannot bear the immediate approach of the divine being, but through him as incarnate are all things communicated unto us in a way suited unto our reception and comprehension." The transfiguration occurred in a way that was suited to these three disciples' reception and comprehension. 
And on this mount, the human face of Christ shone bright like the sun, as it will when he returns, as John saw in his vision. As we read in Revelation 1, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And along with his face shining like the sun, Matthew goes on saying his clothes became white as light, meaning exceedingly white. Luke calls it a dazzling white. Mark describes it like this. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. The picture of pure white clothing harkens the reader back to the vision of Daniel, where the kingly glory and splendor and brilliance is described. Listen to this. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. This display of glory, as Christ's face shone like the sun and his clothing became white as light, is indeed a picture of Jesus Christ coming into his kingdom. But the event didn't end there. Matthew continues in verse 3, And behold, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them, with him. Moses and Elijah appeared and had conversation with Jesus. Now, there are, again, a number of suggestions as to why Moses and Elijah appeared. As we noted earlier, both Moses and Elijah had mountaintop experiences with the Lord, with Moses witnessing the burning bush and being called to ascend up to Mount Sinai as the Lord descended upon the mountain with fire the smoke of which went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly as the sound of heavenly trumpets grew ever louder. And when Moses spoke, the Lord answered him in thunder. This is all in Exodus 19. While Elijah, at the Lord's command, went out to stand on the mountain before the Lord, and we read in 1 Kings 19, Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And after the wind, an earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And now here they are again on a mountain with the Lord. One commentator said, that Moses is present as the one who reflected the divine glory because Moses' face shone when he descended from the mountain after time with the Lord, while Elijah is the preacher of the divine glory, and they both give way to Jesus, who is the revealer of divine glory. Most suggest that Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. And when you put those two words together, law and prophets, this is the designation that is used to to describe the Old Testament as a whole. Both the law and the prophets were shadows and pointers to Christ who came to fulfill both. Moses and Elijah are towering, unparalleled figures in the Old Testament. And here they are testifying to Peter, James, and John that everything they accomplished, the entirety of their role in God's saving plan, pointed to Jesus. The Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah engaged in conversation, and Luke lets us in on the content of that conversation. In Luke 9.31, we read this, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, the word for departure here in Luke's gospel is the Greek word that means exodus. 
Moses is the one who led Israel out from bondage and enslavement in Egypt by the power of the Lord. He led an exodus of Israel out from Egypt in the Lord's power. And Elijah's ministry was one that focused on leading Israel in an exodus out from enslavement to the worthless idols that they were worshiping. And now both of them speak to the Lord Jesus Christ about the greater exodus from enslavement to the penalty and power of sin. And you can imagine it, right? Just imagine the scene. Imagine the excited tones of both Moses and Elijah. The time has come. The plan that we spoke of oh so long ago is at hand. Everything that the law and the prophets pointed to, it's all about to take place by your departure, by the result of the exodus that you, Jesus, will lead. Great wonders are about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. The power of sin defeated, enslavement to iniquity broken, the sting of death eliminated, eternal life secured, righteousness declared and reckoned, the curse of the law ended. All shadows, all types, all figures give way to the reality. Oh, hallelujah, oh, glorious day, oh, wonder of wonders. The disciples are upset by what Jesus had just said that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised. But Moses and Elijah are on the mountain adoring the Lord Jesus Christ for what he is about to do. And as Luke writes, Moses and Elijah were about to part from Jesus. And it's then when Peter says in verse 4 of Matthew, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter is extremely delighted by the scene. When it seemed time for the party to break up, he didn't want it to end. He didn't want to leave this mountaintop with these three figures. And in essence, he asked to stay on the mountain so that he could enjoy the scene for a prolonged period of time. You see, remember, like we've been saying, Jesus had just spoken of the necessity of his own suffering, his own death, his own resurrection, and he had just enlightened the disciples to this fact that their own suffering, they will also suffer as well. And so Peter, as he often did, spoke without thinking. Luke actually said Peter didn't even know what he was saying. He just blurted it out. Why? Well, perhaps Peter hoped to invite the religious leaders in Israel, along with the people of Israel, up to the top of the mountain so that they might see Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. Maybe they'll bring a, they can bring up the people so they can see Moses and Elijah vouching for their rabbi. And maybe, just maybe, they can bypass all of this suffering business as they seek to make him king. And the word here that is used for tents, it's the same word that describes the tabernacles or the booths used at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that's a celebration that the Lord instituted in Leviticus 23. It's a seven-day celebration. So Peter here, in asking Jesus if he should set up three tents, wants to remain on this mountain for at least seven days. And note as well that Peter makes no distinction between the three tents. He doesn't say, well, Jesus, I'm going to build you this spectacular tent and then I'll have two lesser tents for them. He kind of sees them all equal. Obviously, he had not 
been paying close attention to what Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about. Because if he had, he would have known that Jesus is the primary attraction. Jesus is the star of the show. Jesus is the main event. And while Peter spoke, and he lodged his foot ever deeper into his own mouth, the Father appeared on the scene. And he spoke, as we read in verse 5. Peter was still speaking when, behold, see that word a lot in this there, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. A bright cloud cast a shadow upon them, surrounded them, enveloped them. Once again, throughout scripture, we see that the presence of God is described in such terms. For example, when the Lord went out before Israel by day when they departed from Egypt, he did so in a pillar of cloud. When the Lord appeared to Israel as they were grumbling and complaining about the manna that he had been providing for them, Exodus tells us, Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. At the consecration of the tabernacle, in first, uh, in, at the end of Exodus, we read that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And again, at the dedication of the temple that Solomon had constructed, we read that a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And as he had in the past, the Lord spoke to the people from the cloud. And what did he say? He said, this is my beloved son. The Lord confirms to the three disciples that are on this mountain exactly what he had revealed to Peter earlier on in chapter 16. This Jesus is indeed the son of the living God. And not just any son. He is the beloved son. The beloved son with whom the father is well pleased. In whom the father takes delight. In all that Jesus says, in all that Jesus does, the father approves and delights. See, the son lives in perfect agreement with the will and the plan of the Father. And so as Satan had been working on the disciples to see and to tempt and to test Jesus into bypassing the cross after he so clearly set out the path of Messiah, you remember Peter took Jesus aside to rebuke him, saying, May this never be. And Jesus responded by saying, Get behind me, Satan. Here, Peter is shown that the Father loves and delights in his beloved son and reveals a glimpse of the glory that the son had with the father before the son took on flesh and announced his continued unbroken delight in Jesus even as Jesus walks the path of suffering that has been set out for him by the father. The father delights in his son even as the agony of the cross draws daily nearer. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it is foolishness. The disciples thought the cross was foolishness, but we on this side know that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And after endorsing Jesus, he then commands Peter, James, and John, look at it again, to listen to him. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
Pay close attention to everything that he tells you with an eye to accepting it as truth and obeying it. The word listen here doesn't simply mean take it into your ear canal and hear it. It means hear what he says and strive to conform your thoughts and your actions to what he commands. Submit to his authority. Believe what he tells you about the role and work of Messiah. If Jesus tells you that he must go to Jerusalem and there suffer many things, be killed and raised on the third day, that's what must happen. If he tells you that you will suffer because you follow him as a disciple, walking the path that he blazed after him, if he tells you that he will be raised and he will return to judge everyone on earth, listen to him. Whatever he declares is truth. Listen. This is a good reminder for us today as well, isn't it? Because so many of us can be exactly like Peter when confronted by a difficult truth of Christ in his word. We seek to bend scripture and sometimes we get ourselves all wrapped up in like a, like a pretzel in order to justify our lack of belief and obedience. We can at times read the clear word of Christ and like Peter say, may it never be. There's no way this can be true. And if that's the case, that's a surefire sign that your values like those of Peter and the disciples, have been too deeply conditioned by the world that we live in. See, remember, God hasn't given us his word so that we won't know things. God hasn't given us his word so that we won't know who he is. He gave us his word so that we can clearly know his will, his plan, his person, his attributes, his path of salvation, the life that we, the life of righteousness. Jesus is the beloved Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased and the command remains. We who follow after him as disciples must listen to him. We ought to respond like the disciples did here in verse 6. You see it. When they heard this voice speaking out of the cloud, when they heard the command to listen, it says they fell on their faces and were terrified. When they heard the voice from the cloud of the Father's presence, they were terrified. These three realized at this moment that they were in the presence of the holy, majestic, awe-inspiring, fear-inducing God of Israel. And in keeping with the consistent response of those who had such a direct encounter with the Lord, they threw themselves, that's what the word means, they threw themselves onto the ground in sheer terror. They know how God has related to people in the past. When Moses went up on the mountain way back in Exodus, for example, we read this in chapter 19. The Lord said, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. The holiness of God apart from a perfect, righteous mediator prohibited the people's approach to God on the mountain. But here, the disciples are on the mountain and the cloud of the Lord's presence appears and the Lord speaks. And so what will happen to them? In their mind, the, thought, the ideas of Mount Sinai flow right back into their minds. 
And in terror, they fall on their faces. But look at verse 7. And this is our reality. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. See the difference between Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai with Moses and the disciples here on the mountain with Jesus. Because of all Christ will accomplish, because of his faithfulness, because of his work on our behalf, on behalf of all who believe in him, because we have a great high priest over the house of God, we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, according to Hebrews. While the disciples couldn't quite understand yet, that because Christ will suffer and die and be raised, they can rise and have no fear. Because Christ suffered, was killed, died, and rose again, you can have no fear. In Christ, by grace, through faith in Him, fear in the form of terror is transformed into a reverent fear of our Heavenly Father. We are, in Christ, given permission now to boldly approach Him as children approach their own parents. And the disciples here, when they lifted up their eyes in response to Jesus, it says they saw no one but Jesus only. When the disciples looked up, Moses was gone. Elijah was gone. And who was left? Jesus, the centerpiece of the faith, of our faith. Jesus, the one who is alone to be listened to and obeyed, stands before them. What an amazing experience. Peter and James and John must be reeling as they consider everything that they've just seen and heard. But as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So as Jesus has been consistently doing, he charged them to tell no one. Tell no one what you've witnessed again, or what you've witnessed, so as not to excite a zeal from the crowds that is not in accordance with knowledge. So, to keep, so as to keep the crowds from again trying to forcibly install Jesus as earthly king of Israel, because that's not what must happen. Jesus must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things and he must be killed and he must be raised up on the third day. And this, this mountaintop experience left its mark on all three of these disciples. James would soon go on after the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be killed, the first one. And Peter and John both reference it in their writings for our edification and encouragement. John referenced this in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, when he wrote this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He remembers that moment when Jesus said, Rise, have no fear. And Peter, in his second letter, wrote this. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. For you and I, 
This is the Jesus that we belong to. If you've put your faith and your trust in Christ, this is your Lord. Behold him. This is the Jesus we've devoted our lives to. This is the Jesus for whom we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And as readers, we are given a peek into the royal majesty and splendor of Christ as we hear the Father say to him that he is well pleased and he is delighted by his beloved Son. And as this event left its mark on those present, so too for us on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, for those who believe in his name, for those in whom the Holy Spirit resides, this is an event that ought to increase our faith as we see ever clearer the object of our faith. As he is made greater, our faith grows in along with that. Our trust, our commitment to Christ, the more worthy we see him, the easier it will be for us to lay down all rights to ourselves. The more we see him worthy, the more we will be able to give up our lives here on earth. The more we will be able to dedicate ourselves to him, come whatever may. So I pray this morning in closing that you will see your Lord Jesus Christ in this text. Face shining like the sun, clothes so dazzlingly and radiantly bright that you would see a glimpse of his glory and you would trust him, the glorious king over all, with every single inch of your life. To him be the glory. Amen. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your servants recording such events for our edification and for our growth in faith and in knowledge. And I pray that this morning, if there are people here who have not come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that somehow, some way, you will turn their hearts to see this morning just how glorious Jesus is and how worthy he is of us giving our lives up for him. And for those who do love and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I pray that you would encourage us and edify us by this text to, increasing, to see Jesus as increasingly glorious, to rem- re- recognize that our view of Jesus is oftentimes far too small. And when we come to a text like this, we see that he is more glorious than we could have ever imagined, and he is so worth us giving up everything in this life we should be called upon to do so. We praise you, we honor you, we love you, we cherish you, all in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.